Lord, as we open your word, I pray that by the power of your spirit, we we'd really have eyes to see, we'd have ears to hear. And Lord, as we look at just so much movement in the history of Israel and all of these events and all of these deaths, I pray, Lord, that we would see the bigger picture. I pray, Lord, that we'd have grace to see our own hearts and our own lives. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. I pray that in my weakness, you would be my strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to 2 Kings chapter 8, 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16. 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 16. And we're going to move a long way this morning. We're going to see how far we get. I, uh, it's always sobering, isn't it, to, when you think about eras that end. I, uh, when you lose somebody, you, you really consider their life. You consider just the reality of, uh, of death. I, after I lost my dad, I, I think one of the things that really brought it home to me was a strange situation because it wasn't involving him. It was involving one of my friend's father's. And I remember when I uh, lost dad, I thought to myself, thinking of my friend's dad, I was like, I, I really think that he's going to live another 20 years. At the time my dad died, he was 73, and my friend's father was 77. And I really just was amazed, and I thought, I, I don't know if I'm going to see the end of his legacy even throughout my adult life. Well, then my friend's dad got sick. And I'll never forget it. it when, when I heard the news that he had passed, I, 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 it just brought all of that reality of the length of his life. It brought the reality of the length of my father's life, and it just brought it into a summary point. And I, I, I just was, it was sobering thinking about that that era had come to an end. But I want you to think about that when it comes to wicked eras that come to an end much different even to summarize. And that's exactly what we're going to look at this morning. A wicked era comes to an end. And what we're going to see in the text this morning, we're going to see a lot, and it really works as a unit. We're going to see the reality of Ahab and Jezebel and all of this period of time drastically come to an end. I remember when... I was thinking I got in my car on a Sunday morning the day that uh, I got in and I turned on the radio and it was the morning that Saddam Hussein had been captured, 2003. Um, I remember the day that, that he was executed. Remember, we all remember the day in, in May of 2011 when we heard the news of Osama bin Laden being killed. And we think about their lives, and we think about the wickedness, and we think about the immorality. We think about all that was summarized by their living. And we have to remember that Ahab and Jezebel was an era of great trouble and wickedness upon the people of God. It was a sad summary of their lives. And today we're going to look at how that era comes 
to an end. And when we look at this this morning, one of the hardest parts of, of studying First and Second Kings for me is just getting handles. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of people, a lot of kings. And, and, and you'll see in our text today, a lot of times names that are repeated and kings that are, uh, you see Ahaziah on the line of the kings of Israel and Ahaziah on the line of the kings of Judah. You see a guy named Jehoram, who's also called Joram, who's a king of Israel. And you also see a Jehoram who's called Joram on the kings of Judah. If that doesn't confuse you, I'm impressed. So we really got to get some baselines here. And what we're going to try to do as we get started is just establish like five baselines, five baselines to understand what in the world is happening in verses chapter 8, 16, all the way to chapter 10, verse 27. What's happening? We're going to try to understand the narrative a little bit, and then we're going to step back, and we're going to look at some application, and we're going to seek to look at some responses to what we're learning in the text. The first baseline that we're going to look at, the first two baselines in your mind, I want you to think, are going to be kings of Judah. Kings of Judah, the first two that he mentions, starting in verse 16. The first baseline that we're going to look at is King Jehoram. King Jehoram. If you're taking notes, it's critical to understand he's mentioned here in verses 16 through 24 of chapter 8. And really, the highlights of what you need to know about this man is that he's also known as Joram. That's a shorter version of Jehoram. Um, it would be no different than if people called me Steve or Stephen, and I've been called both all my life. I don't recognize a difference. Well, Jehoram wouldn't have recognized the difference between Jehoram and Joram. It was just a shortened form. He was uh, 32 years old when he came, became king of Judah. He reigned eight years. But the text sadly mentions the reality that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And if you really want to see some things working against him, was in his marriage choice. He married Ahab's daughter. Now, guys, there's a lot of women I might tell you to avoid. But definitely, in that day, Ahab's daughter wouldn't have been on the list of possibilities. No, that's not working. That's not going to happen. And so what does he do? He marries Ahab's daughter. And you got to remember, you know, like so many times, kings would marry with political alliances and light. It would be the kind of thing to where if I marry her, or if a king's daughter married over here, it would allow there to be a political game, something that would help out the political alliances. And so we look in our passage here in chapter 8, and, and you see some of these realities about he walked, verse 18, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see in verses 20 through 22, fascinating section dealing with the relationship of Judah with Edom. Edom, the Edomites would have been, if we were to go to the land of Edom in modern times, we'd go over to Jordan. And go over to Jordan, if you think about the geography of Israel and Jordan, it's right next door. And so the Edomites were a constant um, battle for the, the, the people of Israel. And you see the explanation here as to what happened in verses 20 
through 22. So we see a snapshot here in the first baseline of King Jehoram of Judah. Verse 22, 23, 24, we see that. And then we go into baseline number two. Baseline number two, we're talking about King Ahaziah. We, in the end of chapter 8, we see not only Jehoram, but we see Ahaziah. And it's going to be critical that we see this because Ahaziah is the king of Judah. Now Jehoram passes away of Judah, and the one who follows him is Ahaziah. And, and when we look at Ahaziah, one thing that's really important for us to understand, this is where you can get confused, is that Joram is a different guy than the one who just died. He's the king of Israel to the north. Ahaziah is in the south. So while Ahaziah is a leader, Joram is the leader to the north. And Ahaziah was a young guy when he became king. He was 22. He only reigned one year. And again, sadly, he walked in rebellion. And what's important as we look at the end of chapter 8 is that there is a war that takes place. If we look at verse 27... He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. Now look at verse 28. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds of that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. So that last verse is critical to understand how this is going to unfold. And when we move into chapter 9, it really begins to make more sense in the narrative. I think you're going to be able to easily see the sections unfold. But so far, what do we have? We have two kings described of Judah. We see Jehoram. He didn't walk in the ways of God. We say Ahaziah. He didn't walk in the ways of God. And at the end of the chapter here, we see another king, and that king is the one who's a contemporary of Ahaziah. He's a different Joram than the first one we looked at, and he's a king of Israel, Joram of Israel. What do we know about him? There he is. He's also known as Jehoram. That gets really confusing. It's like having four kids in your class with the same name. And that's never easy. Our, our three guys on the same team, and you've got to come up with nicknames to figure out who to throw the ball to. But he goes to war. This Joram of Israel goes to war against Syria with Ahaziah. And here is what really begins to turn the storyline. He's wounded in war. He's wounded in war. And what does he do when he's wounded in war? When he's wounded in war, he goes to Jezreel. You remember, it's Jezreel where we know the house or the palace of Ahab was located. We remember that story where Elijah runs in front of Ahab's chariot at Mount Carmel at the end of that whole scene. And remember, we were reminded of where the palace was and all of that. And that's going to come into play because Jezebel is located in Jezreel. Now, if you're lost, hang in there. The next baseline, Jehu becomes king. So the first two baselines have to do with 
Judah, Jehoram, Ahaziah. The third baseline deals with the king of Israel, his name, Joram. But then we learn about another king in Israel, and his name is Jehu. And this guy's going to be known as the Avenger. There is so much blood that is shed starting in chapter 9, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 27. And Jehu is going to be the instrument through which God brings great judgment on many people. And what happens in chapter 9, verse 1 through 13, is Elisha reveals God's plan. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments, take this flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us? All? And he said, yield, commander. So he arose and went into the house. And the young man, imagine this. Jehu's a commander of the army. He goes into the inner chamber. When he goes into the inner chamber, one of the sons of the prophets that Elisha had commissioned anoints his head with oil in verse 6. And the young man poured his oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. Side thought here. God is sovereign in the ways that he calls people to different positions. Why Jehu? God's will. God raised him up. We can all face situations in our life where we want to be this or we want to be that or we want to have this gift, or we want to have that gift. But one thing we have to come to grips with is trusting in the sovereign hand of God to do with us as he will. We can trust in that. It wasn't Jehu's ambition to become king. It was God's will for him to be sovereignly anointed and to be raised up in this role, to be raised up as God's vessel. And it's something that we could really ponder and consider as we look at our life as we think about our circumstances, as we think about where we are, as we think about the positions we're in, we can trust in God. God is sovereign over our lives. And now, what does he tell him he's going to do? Verse 7, And you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. Wow. So what happens in verse 8, for the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel, and I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. Verse 10, and the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, you know the fellow and his talk. They knew something more, though, verse 12. And they said, this is not true. That is not true. Tell us now. 
And he said, thus, and he, so he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. And now look what they do. They, they immediately acknowledge it. In verse 13, then in haste, every man of them took his garment, put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Now, here we go. Put your seatbelt on. Because Jehu is going to be an avenger of judgment. And look in what takes place next in the text. He kills several people. God raises up Jehu. He kills Joram in chapter 9, verse 14 through 26. He kills Ahaziah in chapter 9, verse 27 through 29. He kills Jezebel in chapter 9, 30 through 37. He kills Ahab's descendants in chapter 10, 1 through 17. Then he has a sneaky, crafty plan, and he kills the prophets of Baal in chapter 10, verses 18 through 27. Jehu's a very complicated fellow because we don't list him as one of the godly kings of Israel because there's no godly kings in Israel. We have a few in the line of Judah, but what's interesting about Jehu is he comes really close because he follows some directions of the Lord in many instances of his life, but we read of the tragedy that his heart was not wholly given to the Lord. So we come into this. The first person that God uses him as an avenger for is Joram and then Ahaziah. It's a fascinating story. Where is Joram at this point? Joram is in Jezreel. He's in Jezreel. Why is he in Jezreel? Do you remember? He was in battle with Ahaziah, and he was wounded. And he goes to Jezreel to heal up. You get the sense that literally he's like in an infirmatory. They're taking care of him. And all of a sudden, what takes place, verse 14 of chapter 9, thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. And here we go. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, let no one slip out of the city and go and tell the news in Jezreel. He basically is telling the servants of the king, look, if you're going to acknowledge me as king, don't you go off and go to Jezreel and tell everybody. Don't, don't tell anyone. So what happens is he begins to act as the avenger. He mounts on his chariot, verse 16. Now at this point, Ahaziah, he's visiting. He is the king of Judah. He's visiting King Joram in Jezreel. And now Jehu's coming, and both of them are in the same location. Verse 17, the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send to meet them and let him say, is it peace? So what happens? They send a messenger. Verse 18, so a man on horseback went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, he's not messing around. What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported saying, Joram, the messenger we just sent, he's not coming back. 
wait a minute, something's wrong. He's supposed to be going as a delegate, and now he's in line with the whole group of Jehu. Well, then Joram's got to be alarmed by that. And he says, well, verse 19, send out a second horseman. And, and he comes to Jehu. And you got to imagine this. Jehu's got all this company of people, and he's got the first messenger as part of his company of people. And now the second messenger says, is it peace? And Jehu answered, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again, the watchman reported, he reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. He's driving like a 16-year-old. I won't tell you who, but there's a kid in my neighborhood driving me nuts. And he gets on my rearview mirror, and he could scratch my neck when he's driving behind me. Right? You understand what I'm saying? Well, that's the way he's driving. <laughs> and it doesn't look like it's favorable. It doesn't look favorable because he's coming. And now at this point, verse 22, and when Joram saw Jehu, now wait a minute, verse 21, Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out each in his chariot and went to meet Jehu. Now, this gets really big. And look at the last line of verse 21. The text tells us something very pointed that we can't miss. And met him at the property of Naboth. Whoa. You remember what happened with Naboth? You remember the death that he endured? You remember his sons that died? We're going to find out. We looked at that in 1 Kings, but we see it here. His sons died also. Why? Because of the wickedness of King Ahab and the wickedness of Jezebel, who basically said, don't you dare let anything stand between you and your desire to get that vineyard. And now it just so happens. In the providence of God, they meet up at the property of Naboth. God is not mocked. And here we are, verse 22, and when Joram saw Jehu, listen to this, this is building, building. Remember the first messenger? Is it peace? Get behind me. Second messenger, is it peace? Get behind me, ride behind me. And now, third time, Jehu says, is it peace, Jehu? He answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Any inkling he thought that he could calm things down is now gone. He knows he's in trouble. Verse 23, Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, treachery, O Ahaziah. He might as well have been saying, we in trouble, Ahaziah. He is coming, verse 24, and Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart. He sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up. Throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, 
how the Lord made this pronouncement against him? Wow, isn't that amazing? God selected a man in his own wisdom, God's wisdom. He selected a man who was privy to the very murder, to the whole situation. He remembers Verse 26, as surely as I saw yesterday, the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up, throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. Verse 27, Ahaziah is in trouble now. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ablim. And he fled to Megiddo and he died. Verse 28, his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. So what do we see so far? He's killed Joram, number one up there. He's killed Ahaziah. Now, who's next? Jezebel. Jezebel is next. Verses 30 to 37, and this is a monumental period in the life of Israel. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And what is her reaction? She puts her makeup on. She painted her eyes, adorned her head, and looked out the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, is it peace? Now notice, that's the fourth time that's been asked. First by the first messenger, second by the second messenger, third time by the king, Joram, fourth time, it's now by Jezebel. And notice what happens. Is it peace, you, what does she refer to him as? You, Zimri. You remember who Zimri is? Zimri was the man who murdered someone. And Zimri would be a knock because basically she's saying, are you like Zimri? Is that what you're doing? Are you, are you coming? She's talking sarcastically, talking a little provocatively, all dressed up. And what happens next is crazy. Verse 32, and he lifted up his face to the window and said, who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, throw her down. And they threw her down. They threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But that wasn't in the cards for Jezebel, because God had made a pronouncement of judgment on her. And what took place, even as the king is going to show somewhat kind of mercy to her to have her buried in a proper burial, 35, but when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite in the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. He adds more than what we see recorded in 1 Kings, but this is Elijah's pronouncement in 1 Kings 21, 23. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And that's what's happening now. So what do we have next? 
Who is he going to kill next? He's going to kill Ahab's descendants. I'm not going to have time to unpack every verse in chapter 10. But because these work in a sequence, it's important to see the avenger here, Jehu. And now you can get the idea quickly. Look at chapter 10. As we look at chapter 10, notice with me how verse 1 Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, so Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria to the rulers of the city, to the elders, to the guardians of the sons of Ahab. And what he does, he says in verse 6, he wrote a second letter, if you're on my side and if you're ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's son, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as a letter came to them, they took the king's sons, slaughtered them. 70 persons put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. Just as the word of the Lord had said. You go on into chapter 10, verse 18, and it's the second part of this. Jehu strikes down the prophets of Baal. And what he does is, is very sneaky. In verse 18, then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice Offer to Baal. Think about that. Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. And here's what happens, folks. He gets everybody in the house of Baal. He says, bring out all your worship gear. Bring it all in. And he goes outside. There's 80 men surrounding the house of Baal. And he says, let me tell you something. If one of these people inside the house of Baal gets out of here, you're going to die. And guess what happens? Everybody in the house of Baal is dead. The avenger, he goes after the kings. He goes after the sons of Ahab. He kills the prophets of Baal. What do we do with all this? This is a very gory section of scripture. What do we do with it? Five responses. You could come come up with a lot of responses. So you could add to this list. There's plenty of application. The first response that really hit my heart in looking at this, how do we look at this? Number one, watch your walk. Watch your walk. Watch your walk. When we look at Romans 15.4, notice what it says. For whatever was written in former days was written for our what? instruction. We're to learn from these stories. And when we look at these stories and we look at the issue of what's taking place, we see two specific examples, actually three. We see a reference to Jehoram. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We see an example of the walk of Ahaziah. In verse 27, Ahaziah says, He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. And then at the very end of 2 Kings 
in verse 31, notice what it says about Jehu. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel with all his heart. He did not turn from the sons, sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. What does it mean to walk? In the Hebrew, it literally means a person's walk is the pathway of his life. The pathway of one's life. It's the way one lives. I want you to reflect with me this morning. I want you to think about it. When you look at the life and the walk of Jehoram, and you look at the walk and the life of Ahaziah, and you consider the walk and the life of Jehu, what about your life? I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but if you've had an injury, uh, had ankle surgery in college, heard it playing basketball, and, and I remember after that, they say a lot of times when you have a surgery like that, you learn to compensate while you're healing. And I've had a lot of people, I walk like Bigfoot anyway, so that doesn't help. But they would like, walk, I want to watch your gait. I want to watch your gait. And somebody, a physical therapist would sit there and they'd watch you walk and watch your gait. They would examine every step. They would examine your hips. They would examine your posture. They would evaluate it to try to help you with athletics. What's your spiritual gait like this morning? Are you learning anything from Jehoram? Are you learning from Ahaziah? Are you learning from Jehu? Are you learning from the other individuals that we've seen? And and here's what I want to just encourage you with. The book of Ephesians uses this word in the New Testament for walk more than any other epistle. And, And I want you just to hear some of these passages, and I want you to prayerfully consider how God calls us to walk in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.2 speaks about the way we once walked, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There is a walk we all had in common before our conversion, and we are no longer to walk according to that previous walk. I wondered this morning, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, wait a minute, my life looks an awful lot like it did before I came to Christ. We're learning here in the book of Kings, and we see this through the new covenant. We see this as Christians looking back in history, and we see the goodness of Christ and the salvation he brings And we see the power that he provides in our life because he lives in us, his resurrected life. And we see that we're no longer to live that way. And then we see that because of what Christ has done, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 4, I therefore prisoner for the Lord urge you to what? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Look at 4.17. This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In in chapter 5, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then closing out the mentionings of the word walk, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
and I didn't mean to lie, but I did. Ephesians 5.18 is the last one. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Or verse 15, look carefully then how you what? Walk. Not as unwise, but as unwise. And how does he tell them to walk in wisdom? Not to walk being inebriated with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. So this morning, I pray we to carefully examine our walk. Isn't it amazing how time just, you, you get around people and everybody I think says this. It's like I'm that person that talks to people in elevators. I talk to everybody. And, and you know, you can talk to them like, man, time's flying. You just say sort of corny. I, I find myself doing that sometime. I'm guilty. And, and everybody will look at you and go, man, it is flying. But here's one of the things that we have to pray about. We can get so busy in the seasons of life that we're just sort of living aimlessly without any discernment of our walk. Let us learn from these stories and from these kings to examine our walk in light of the grace of Christ. Not only examine your walk, but second of all, believe and obey God's word. We've seen this before, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. But over and over, we see this phrase, according to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is sure. I was looking at just a simple search, and, and, and you just search according, and you search how it's close to that word, word. It's used over and over in 1 Kings, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12 times in 1 Kings, another about 12 times in 2 Kings, and every time that there's a reference to according to the word of the Lord, it speaks about how God always fulfills what his word declares. And, and if we're looking at these people, and we learn, if we learn from them, the one commonality that all these people had is they didn't believe that the word of the Lord was sure. If they believed it, it was only surface because they didn't obey it. I pray we would learn. You see what he says in 2 Kings 9.26? As surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons declares the Lord. I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him and throw him on the plot of ground. In what? In accordance with what? The word of the Lord. Why? Because the word of the Lord is sure. It's reliable. It's firm. Its promises are completed. And we learn in the New Testament that all the promises of God have their yes in Jesus. That everything that the scripture tells us is true. All of those promises that have yet to be fulfilled, we can learn from the kings that God will keep his word. Notice what Jehu says, Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said, and the Lord will do what he has said. The Lord will keep his word. I pray that in my own life, I wouldn't just preach sermons about people who failed to keep the word of God and then go out of here and not even follow the promises of God as revealed in his word. Wouldn't that be tragic? It'd not only be tragic in my life, it'd be tragic in all of our lives. 
Let's walk according to what the word of the Lord says. And we see that in verse 17 of chapter 10. And notice why this is true. Why is it that the word of the Lord is sure? 2 Peter 1, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God's revealed his word, and that word is sure. All scriptures breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3 says, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the three questions I've got for you about that one, are you trusting God's word today? Actively trusting it. And if you say yes in your mind, ask yourself, how am I trusting it? How am I trusting it? Ask yourself, chew on it, reflect on it. Where have you trusted it this last week? Where have you trusted it over the course of this last month? Another question, are you living by it? Are you seeking after it? Are you meditating on it? The word of the Lord is sure. Number three, pay attention to their reaping and sowing. We're hitting this at 30,000 feet. We've talked about these principles a lot. But if you notice something, you reap what you sow. I remember hearing when I was a kid, my, my dad would always say, speak about the laws of the harvest. You reap what you sow. Now think about it. You reap what you sow, right? Number two, you reap later than you sow. That's, that's farming 101, right? But isn't it easy to forget that? You reap later than you sow. Number three, you reap what more? Then you sow. Do you think it might have been easy in the days of Israel to think, wait a minute, Ahab caught the brunt of this. But look at Jezebel. Things are just knocking along, smooth. Everything's fine. She's in the palace. She's dressing up. She's talking smack to people. I mean, Everything looks like everything is just fine in the life of Jezebel. I want, you, I want to ask you a question today. Do you lose sight of that in the eyes through the scripture? I, think about it. Do you, do you relate to Job? Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? You ever thought that? Do you ever go, uh, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked? Do you ever think all in vain have I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? Have you ever thought that, that the worst people seem to get the biggest breaks? That the people that sometimes are the biggest jerks are the people that get the quickest promotions? I've played ball and you've played ball, but isn't it weird that usually the people that have the most success in athletics aren't the nicest people, they're sometimes the worst but they're praised and lauded when they get those accolades, right? What happens here? We look at the world and often our understanding of what the scripture says doesn't seem to register with what we see, but we can take understanding here. Sometimes we think, well, the people living for the world have the best health. The godly are the ones dying early. Or you could think, over and over and over, all these kinds of things. Jezebel looks like she's riding off in the sunset. She's going to get off completely free. And what takes place? She ultimately, she reaps what she has sown. 
We look at this and we look at this story. We look at the prophets of Baal. You remember these would have been some of the same people that were familiar with old Elijah on Mount Carmel that says, choose you this day. You know, which way is it going to be? If the Lord, he is God, follow him. And what does it look like when you see prophets of Baal sticking around the nation of Israel? It looks like everything's fine. Everything's back to normal. We learn in these stories. We reap what we sow. And we have to understand the word in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And notice this. For the one who sows to his own flesh... Well, from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I pray. Do you realize this morning, by God's grace, not just you, if I, if myself, if I took that to heart and, and, I, and I live by it, I believe the Scripture and what it says here, It would change the trajectory of the way I live. Learn from the book of 1 and 2 Kings. You see, the judgment is critical to understand here. We reap what we sow. Now, that ought to give us great pause. You may be thinking, wait a minute. I'm a good person. I try hard. I'm active in giving, I'm active in charity, I go to church occasionally, I do good things. But here's what we have to realize. If we're going to reap what we sow, we have to take very seriously what we read in Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Talk about that or think about with me that first part. For the wages of sin is death. You may be here today thinking, well, I hadn't faced death yet because death is not only speaking of ultimately physical death, but more importantly, spiritual death, eternal death. Friend, the only hope that we have when we look at the reality of God's holiness and the reality of judgment, we need a substitute. We need a redeemer. I pray that we would all feel the weight of what happens to all these people in 2 Kings 9 and 10. And I pray we would ask ourselves the question, am I prepared to stand before a holy God and reap what I have sown? Well, here's the only hope. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our only hope is the great exchange. Our only hope is by grace through faith, trusting in Jesus. And the miracle is this. He takes my sin. He gives me his righteousness. Friend, we have to be prepared for judgment, but there is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 1, number 4. We only got one more after this. Hang in there. Take comfort that God sees his suffering people. Did you catch this? I missed it the first time through. It took a guy named Ralph Davis to remind me of what I jumped right over. I already have my outline done, and thanks to Dr. Davis, this is an added point. Take comfort that God sees his suffering people. You say, where do you get that? Well, what happens is it's important that God remembered his people. God remembered, look at verse 26, 
of chapter 9, as surely as I saw yesterday, the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. You remember when Jezebel had killed many of the prophets? It's comforting here to understand God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's also comforting to see that God sees the plight of his people. You may be here this morning thinking that God's lost sight of your situation. You could be overwhelmed in trials and circumstances that it even hurts you to sit here because you're crying out inside thinking no one knows what really is hurting me on the inside. God sees God sees the plight of his people. God sees the suffering of his people. Take comfort in that. It shows us the character of God. It shows us the covenant union we have with God in Jesus Christ. We think that often he's forgotten, but he hasn't. Listen to, to, uh, look at this, but you do see. Psalm 10, 14 For you know mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands to you that helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Second Thessalonians, since indeed God consider it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus as you're tempted to think like we all, I think, have been, maybe you haven't. Praise God if you haven't. But have you ever thought, wait a minute, this isn't fair, this isn't right, I want you to take comfort because even through the words of 2 Kings, we have assurance that God will right every wrong. It may not look like it now in your present experience, but he will. Finally this morning, Look to Christ as your only hope. You may be thinking, well, that's something you could say at the end of any sermon. It is. That's a good application no matter where we're at, right? But there's actually a reason. Do you realize that the Bible has a focus? And even from the beginning of Genesis, it has a trajectory. And we have to see this. If not, we'll just think the Bible is a bunch of stories, and then we finally get to Jesus in the New Testament. But that's not true. John 5, Jesus says, you search the Scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Remember on the road to Emmaus, when he opened up the eyes of the two travelers on that road to see who he was? Look at what he says. Well, look at what he did. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture, the things concerning himself. A lot of times people say, where would you like to be in the Bible? What place in the Bible? I think this is a good candidate to win that prize. I'd love to have been on that road and heard that sermon. With all that in mind, I want you to be reminded here that it happens even in our text. You remember as we were reading about the kings and how they were following after their own ways, He was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done for the daughter of Ahab was his wife and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But look at verse 19. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. 
for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him. What does that mean? What was the promise of a lamp to David and to his sons forever? We got to see this. There's a promise in 2 Samuel. There's a promise God gave to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You figuring out who this is? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, Isaiah 7. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Luke tells us, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Do you realize even as we look at 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10, God was faithful to keep his promise of Messiah? Deuteronomy 28 says, here's the blessings, here's the cursing. If you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, you'll be punished with this. And we look at Judah, and we look at the king Jehoram, and we look at Ahaziah, and we go, why are you keeping up with them? Why are you putting up with this? And it's as if God in the pages of Scripture here says, I will always keep my word. I will always be faithful to my promise. Our hope is Jesus. So in summary this morning, Watch your walk. Believe and obey God's word. Pay attention to reaping and sowing. Take comfort that God sees his people. Look to Christ as your only hope. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that even as we've seen some applications here this morning, Lord, there's so There's so much more that I haven't even uncovered that that, that I pray that would thrill our heart. I pray, oh God, that everyone here today would see themselves in need of a Savior. I pray that we would see the authority, the sufficiency of your word. I pray that we would see that you're a God who sees. You'll right every wrong. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to follow you when it hurts, when it seems so consequential, when we, oh God, guard our minds. I pray that we would not only gain instruction through learning more of the Old Testament, but that it would bring encouragement. It would lead us to hope in Christ. And we thank you that everything we're called to be and everything we're called to do is only possible because of Christ who lives in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If